You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Lacrosse has come out with a new series called the Navigator Series, and it's badass. They have two new boots within this new series. One is the Atlas, and one is the Windrose. I personally wore the Atlas all year in 2019, and even so far into 2019. Really good boot, really comfortable, really easy to break in. And what they've done is they've taken their traditional rubber boot, and they've kind of mashed it together with a traditional hiking and hunting boot and uh, the outcome is something really good. It's a really great boot. I used it during my entire whitetail season. So uh, if you want to find out more information about the Navigator Series, the Atlas, and the Windrose, you need to go to lacrossefootwear.com. Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. Today, we have a really interesting episode. Uh, We're talking with former LSU football player, Matt Branch, and Matt is going to basically do a hunter profile slash BS session with us today, and he's going to talk about uh, growing up hunting in Louisiana, his job as a cottonseed salesman in a, in a farmer down south. I'll tell you, uh, I love talking to farmers because I, for some reason, I always feel like they have something interesting to say or they can provide you with some knowledge that you, you've never known about. I guess from a uh, just an information like random facts and I love random facts and and getting a random education from someone so we do our fair share of BS in this episode and then the the uh, the topic in the podcast kind of turn into a really serious note Um, Matt was in a firearm accident uh, a hunting accident where a dog jumped on a gun and it shot him in the leg and uh, so he talks about gun safety. He talks about the amputee process and him having to learn how to live life with only one leg now. Uh, so it's a very interesting story, and I'm sure you guys are going to enjoy it. I do have to say, and I'm not sure, I tried to fight it the entire uh, episode, but we did have some audio issues back and forth. It almost sounded like the the wireless signals or something were getting crossed with waiting like waiting music 
Like when someone puts you on hold at a doctor's office and some music plays in the background, it sounds like our wires were getting crossed somewhere. So every once in a while, you'll hear some some uh, audio noise, and I do apologize for that. But this uh, story is too good not to share. So please bear with me on that. And I got to do a commercial here today. And of course, it's Vortex Optics, right? So uh, Vortex Optics has been around for a while now. Um, And like I said in some previous episodes, I I really like working with brands that have good people working for the company. And over the years, I've been able to meet some of the people and talk to some of the people from Vortex and not only on a business level, but on a personal level too. And I really, uh, I really think they, uh, they're just a great brand. They do great things for the hunting industry and the hunting community. And I love working with them on top of that, right? All that aside, they make killer optics, right? Right. They have binoculars, rifle scopes, um, range finders, spotting scopes, and uh, other stuff as well. But I'm telling you, just a great brand. And to top it off, the cherry on top is that if you damage or break your optics in any way, all you have to do is send it back to them. They will fix it for free, right? That's one hell of a warranty if you ask me. So vortexoptics.com, go and check them out and tell them Dan Johnson from the Nine Finger Chronicles sent you. Other than that, we are... We're on the runway. We're on the tarmac right now, and we're getting ready to take off into this new episode with Matt Branch. Matt Branch, how the hell are you, man? Dan, I'm doing good, man. Uh, No complaints down here in Louisiana right now, other than it's been raining like crazy the last few days. That's what uh, I hear. The sun has finally popped back out down here, and uh, everybody's wondering what that bright yellow thing in the east is right now i hear that dude um let me ask okay so i lived down in alabama for a couple years um i've been to new orleans um i lived in arkansas and georgia for a little bit so i understand the south and i I don't like i know about it right as far as the weather's concerned um when i was in alabama uh I was down in Alabama and Georgia for about a two-year period, and let's see, it snowed. Didn't accumulate on the ground, but it snowed one day, just enough to dust some things, and they shut down schools for two straight days because they didn't have, you know, they don't have the road equipment like we do up here in Iowa. Yep, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy, man. We'll we'll catch a snow like. I'd say probably one out of every three years, usually, where I live. I live kind of in like the northeast part of Louisiana. And you're exactly right, man. They shut everything down. It's like, it's just a holiday. You know, everybody loves <laughs> when it snows, or even when there's a chance of snow, that sometimes they'll close schools down. You know, it's it's crazy, man. Everybody loses their minds, and everybody tries to find a a hill somewhere there's not many hills down here um it's mostly all flat so we have we do have levees and um i remember as a kid we would take the wheels and the trucks and stuff off of skateboards and we'd go to the levee if it ever snowed and we'd like act like we were just professional snowboarders going down the levee and stuff man (laughs) but yeah snow is pretty rare and it's uh it's a crazy extravaganza when it does happen down here in the south yeah um yeah, it was uh, absolutely crazy. And then uh, I, you know, I've been down in New Orleans a couple times and 
uh, in, let's see, one was in July, which was one of the most uncomfortable times I've ever been outside. Uh, you know, just this Midwestern, Midwestern boy. I, I, at the end of that trip, when I was down in New Orleans, I would leave my hotel with an extra white t-shirt. I had one t-shirt that I would put on to walk back and forth to places. And then when I would get to wherever I went, I would switch that one out and put on the one that I had in my bag. So, so I wasn't just soaking wet, drenched with sweat everywhere I went. Yeah, dude, it's, um, the humidity down here is just unbelievable. You know, it's, it's tough to deal with. And I mean, I've lived here pretty much my whole life and, uh, I've kind of gotten used to it and, and figured out the, the proper techniques. If you're going to be outside in the months of June, July, and August, man, you better you better be prepared and have some extra clothes with you at all times for sure. Right. All right. So today's kind of like a, a BS session, a hunter profile podcast. I feel like we haven't done one of these in a while. Um, and we're just going to BS a little bit about you growing up, you know, what you've done, um, in your life when we got kind of a twist to the story towards the end but um just i guess we'll start it off like we do all the all the podcasts uh we know you live in louisiana where do you live and what do you do for a living so i live in in monroe louisiana it's like in the northeast part of the state it's a pretty pretty good sized town i think we're about this in monroe and the surrounding area it's about one hundred and fifty thousand people or so um, and then for a job, I work in the agricultural industry. So I work for uh, the company called Corteva AgriScience. And it's, it's actually a pretty new company name. It was um, formed after the merger of Dow and DuPont. Okay. So Dow and DuPont both had agricultural businesses. And then after the two companies merged, the ag portion of their businesses split off. And that formed Corteva AgriScience. Okay. And my title within Corteva is a territory manager. So basically what that entails of is I work for one of the brands underneath the Corteva umbrella called Phytogen Cottonseed. And my job is to basically sell Phytogen Cottonseed. I'm like a sales rep type job. And um, my territory is the entire state of Louisiana. And I also go up into the southeast part of Arkansas, um, kind of the, par- the the counties that border the Mississippi River up there in Arkansas. So um, I work out of my house. I have a pretty uh, flexible schedule. I kind of, you know, have to make my own schedule every week and uh, what parts of the state I'm going to be visiting and, you know, which customers I'm going to be talking to. And um you know, the best thing for me about working in the ag industry is the months of the year that we're really not doing anything, that's hunting season. Right. So uh, I pretty much have a lot of free time on my hands during hunting season just because, you know, we're not busy. We're not in the field. I, I have some computer work and stuff I have to get done. But, um, you know, most of the, the prime hunting months, November, December, January, you know, we're not super busy. So it's it's been pretty cool for me to have a job that's got the flexibility that it does during hunting season because, you know, I've grown up hunting for um, 22 years, I guess, the past 22 years. I'm 30 years old now. And, uh, you know, my dad, has he got us out in the, in the woods at a young age, and 
and taught us everything about the outdoors that he knew. And uh, I've been, you know, adamant on trying to learn more and and trying to, uh, you know, be the best steward and outdoorsman that I could ever be. Yeah, absolutely. Man, another, this is kind of off topic again, but uh, another thing that I really found really interesting about the South, right? Just the United States is so big and there's so much different terrain and, and vegetation and animals and whatnot. But just driving down the roads in the South and seeing the cotton fields and seeing the tobacco fields and that I don't you don't see that in Iowa. It is soybeans. It is corn uh, or it's uh, or it's pasture for cattle. Right. Or pasture for some other type of livestock. So seeing the the uh, cotton fields in bloom was really awesome. Something I, I will always remember about about living down there. So. Out of out of curiosity, do deer eat cotton at all? They will actually eat cotton. Um, if there's if there's very little to eat, and the cotton plant is kind of fresh up out of the ground, kind of a young emerging plant, um, they will actually eat the leaves and stuff on cotton. Now now when it gets bigger, they don't typically eat it. Um, I have heard random stories of people finding deer that will go through and eat like cotton bowls before they're they're open um because within the cotton bowl um you know there's all the fibers but before it opens up and dries out it's actually kind of a a watery substance almost yeah and i have heard just crazy stories of you know people claiming that they've seen deer eating some of their cotton but typically no they 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 really won't unless uh unless there's just nothing else for them to eat. And we actually had a case last year because the Mississippi River got up so high uh, early on. We had some deer that got trapped, and, and they absolutely demolished a 500-acre field of cotton, which was I thought was you know pretty crazy to hear that they ate so much. But right. it was simply because they were trapped, and there was nothing else for them to eat. You know. Right. Man, that's crazy. All right, so um, – you kind of grew up in a family uh, hunting and fishing, uh, or the outdoors. Were you introduced into deer hunting right away or fishing right away? Kind of what came first, or did it all happen at the same time? All right. So, uh, yeah, my first memories really were, were deer hunting growing up. Um, because my family works in agriculture too. Uh, fishing was really just a bad time of year for us. You know, the spring is when you're trying to get everything planted in the ground. And, um, you know, there's just not a whole lot of free time. But uh, deer hunting was, was my first when I was growing up. Gotcha. Um, so did you come from a farming family then? Yeah, yeah. So, so my dad worked a similar job that I have now. Um, when I was young and then he also farmed, um, on the side as well with, with my uncles and my grandfather. Uh, they, they've been farming, um, for, I think my grandfather for years now. And, um, yeah, they were all involved in it and, and they're still all doing the same things today. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So you come from a, a farming community, uh, deer hunting, what, you know, up up uh, here in Iowa, October and November are kind of the big uh, the big months. Down there, um, is your rut still in November where you're at, or is it uh, in December or January? 
do all our hunting. It's probably the rut is going to be around uh, second week of December through Christmas. Usually that's when we seem to have the most rut activity. Now here in the South, you know, our deer numbers aren't, aren't quite um, on a level scale like y'all's are up in the Midwest. It seems like I've, I've hunted in Illinois a little bit and um, you know, our buck to doe ratios are, are pretty skewed. Um, I, I don't know the exact ratios of our, our personal family farm, but you know, I'd say we're probably one to three or one to four buck to doe ratio. So we're, we're not seeing just um, lights out, you know, rut activity, like, like you see uh, up in the Midwest. Um, so you're really, you're really, I feel like going to have your best chance of, of coming across a mature deer um, that second week of December here before you know, the rut kicks off. Um, gotcha. that's when I seem to have the most luck and that's when I've, that's when I've run across the most mature deer, um, the last few years anyway. Okay. So the family that you came from, was it a, a, a Brown and down family or was it a, Hey, let's try to, we only shoot bucks or we only, you know, we, we shoot some does for the freezer or what, what kind of family, a hunting family did you come from? So really when i was growing up um you know my dad was just really trying to get me on my first deer that's some of my first memories and then after you know i shot a couple of bucks um then we started to kind of lay down the law of you know all right now we're, we're going to focus on a certain size deer now you know we're not just going to shoot the first deer with horns that comes out um so really we've we've Um, the, the property that we hunt, my family owns it. So, you know, it's in our best interest to take care of it. And, you know, we've been strictly managing it for uh, probably 13 years now. Okay. And, um, you know, we're, we're trying to actively, you know, take uh, doe numbers off every year. And, you know, we're, we're typically trying to get our bucks to five and a half years old before, you know, we put them on the hit list. Wow. Because that's what we've seen. Um and in our area is once that deer hits five and a half, you know, he's, he's going to be very good if he's got the uh, right genetics and potential. Right. Um, now our neighbors, that's the problem is, you know, our neighbors aren't necessarily doing the same things we are. So that's, that's kind of been a struggle, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I feel like for me, you know, it's, it's not just about getting out there. I want to, have a good experience i want to see a lot of deer and i want to make sure that you know we're taking the right bucks you know mature bucks right. it's not about the size to me it's about the age and that's that's really my my goal and my family's goal when it comes to hunting deer right all right so um you you uh you practice some management uh let's talk about like your first couple hunting seasons like you sound it sounds like you were introduced at a very young age uh were you hooked right off the bat or did it take some time for you to get into it and really start to enjoy it well i mean because my family was uh very interested in it and you know that was some of my first memories growing up around my uncles and my granddad i was pretty much hooked now it didn't just click for me right away i think it took 
got my first deer. And um, how long? Some, how long was that? Know, pretty crazy stories. I missed. I was. I think I was about nine years old when nine I got years. my first deer. Okay. All right. And um, but I started hunting at seven years old, and um, you know, we I missed several times, and you know, couldn't find some deer that I had shot, and it was just. I was getting frustrated. I remember being frustrated as a kid. Like, yeah. why can't I make this happen? You know. And so. And then finally, when it when it happened, it was uh it was a big deal, and, and I was hooked right away. You know. Okay, so when when you were introduced, were you introduced uh, with a rifle or a, a gun, like many people, or did you start off with a bow or a crossbow or what? What weapon did your dad start you off with? We started off with a rifle. Um, actually, my first couple of hunts that I remember, uh, I actually had a shotgun, but I, I don't think that lasted very long because season. So uh, you know, you you can hunt with a rifle for a long time down here yeah. uh, in the winter, and that's that's really the weapon of choice for for most people in Louisiana. I would say is a rifle. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, you were introduced, did you, or have you made a jump into bow hunting or how many seasons went by before you, uh, you started, uh, using a bow? So I started bow hunting when I was 16 years old and, um, you know, it took me kind of same thing when I started, when I started hunting as a kid, it took me a couple seasons before I actually was successful and I think I shot my first year with a bow but um you know as soon as soon as I started bow hunting that that really kind of became my my love yeah um that's that's really what I'm passionate about now because because it's just so much more of a challenge um you know and and then when it all happens when it all connects you know there's no better feeling than uh taking and taking a deer with a bow right in your hand you know it's and it just it takes so much more practice and so much more effort and it's uh it's a lot more planning and and you know trying to figure out what the deer are doing and yeah you know how you're going to get close to them because in the south i would say bow hunting is, is a lot harder because we don't have you know the natural funnels that the terrain creates um you know everything's flat and there's really no telling where where these some of these deer are going to come out at you know you've really got to study and and you know run trail cameras and and try to pattern these deer in a completely different way and then once you think you have him patterned you know he's going to do something you never would have ever guessed he would do you know and it's just it's really difficult trying to get close uh to a mature buck with a bow here in the south yeah so do you remember your your first bow harvest yeah i was uh i think i was 18 years old and um i just went out and bought a new bow um the first one i had and i was just kind of using it when i could hunt and um i just went and bought i think it was a bear archery bow it was just the probably the cheapest version they had available and um i got it all set up and i was practicing every day with it you know finally the time came october and i climbed up in a tree and uh yeah i i got set up in there got real quiet and you know i thought it was a pretty good day it wasn't it wasn't super cool it was kind of a 
mild, warm day almost. And um, I remember sitting there, and when the deer finally stepped out, I was shaking like a leaf, man. I mean, I hadn't done that so long, you know, rifle hunting. And here I am with a bow, and I feel like I'm a little kid all over again, you know. Right. And uh, so I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out how I can stand up to get a good shot and a good rest. And um, anyway, I... I uh, little bit too close to me and I, I couldn't stand up so I was trying to sit down and I remember when I drew my bow back my back elbow my right elbow I'm right-handed was uh bumping the tree behind me so I couldn't even get a full draw hardly yeah. on my bow and I remember just being so nervous and mad like how how can I not even draw my bow fully right here so finally after I got confident and felt like I had a good spot and a good good shot on the on the doe um I squeezed the trigger and that arrow flung and I just remember, you know, when you're bow hunting, all you hear is the release and then the pop and it's just quiet after that. You know, you listen to the deer run off and you're trying to figure out which direction they went, how far they went by the sound. And, um, you know, I just remember that feeling and it's, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced with a gun. You know, with, when, when you fire a gun at a deer, it's, Right, right. It's just back together after the gun goes off. And then with a bow, it's just not like that at all. It just feels natural, you know? Yeah. And um, I wound up making a pretty good shot on the deer. She ran like 40 yards. And, uh, dude, I was pumped, man. I was I was hooked from there, and I've been a diehard bow hunter ever since. Yeah, there's something about that, that first archery kill uh, that just – I don't know. It, it it holds, you know, in 2018, I shot my biggest buck, I guess you could say. Not my oldest buck, but the biggest antlered buck. That that was something that I find kind of special, you know. Um, I have a couple other bucks that I, I really played the chess game with and I killed them. And that, you know, that, you know, that's special. But there's something about number one, that first doe, for me, it was a, the, uh, a doe, first doe that I killed with my bow. I can, I can walk you through in detail from the moment that I got out of my truck to the moment I walked into the ladder stand that I put up, you know, five days previous and climbed up and hunted and a small buck came through i let him walk and then this doe was right behind him and i shot i shot her and i tell you what it i can i can i can close my eyes and almost be transported back to that exact moment it's how how ingrained it is in my in my memory and i think that moment for a lot of bow hunters is that moment where you either fall in love with it to the point where it's all you want to do every single day and or it's just something that's eh, okay but there's that exact moment right there i think is the most influential in or has the biggest impact in whether or not you know what direction you go from there does that make sense oh no it definitely makes sense you know i've talked to people that you know they, they could care less about bow hunting um, but anybody that has actually, you know, done it, sat in a tree and, you know, shot a deer and, um, you know, found it, recovered it and everything, it's, 
I think anybody that's done it respects the people that are, you know, very passionate about it because they understand how hard it is um, to actually, you know, make it happen. And, uh, no, that, that makes perfect sense, you know. That it's that moment when, you know, that, that first that first deer steps out in, in range and, and you have a shot. You make a, a good shot and you feel like all your preparation and everything you've done, you know, out in the heat in the summer, shooting your bow, sweating, and, uh, you know, all that paid off. And, um, yeah, that, that makes you. Right. Right. The other, the other thing that I really have any feelings. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I really like about (laughs) the, the first deer that I killed was dude, it made me feel like a absolute badass. Like I felt like I had, I had a couple other buddies who gun hunted only it made me feel like I was just some superior hunter at that point, <laughs> even though I really, you know, I really wasn't oh, yeah, something yeah. about something about the bow hunting part of it. Just, man, I, I just, I fell in love with it. So, all right. So you came from a hunting family, right? A lot of kids, a lot of, a, a lot of right. guys, they get into the sports, Right. And this is all leading up to your time as a football player at the University of Louisiana or LSU, uh, Louisiana State. Um, what? National champions. Man. Yes, sir. Are you, are you fired up? Does the alumni get real fired up about that when that happens? Dude, I mean, it is it, the party is still going on right now, man. Like it is it is unbelievable. The season that the guys had this year and everything and. Yeah, man, it's it's like a whole rejuvenation of energy and excitement around the program right now. Yeah, right. all the alumni are, are super fired up. Yeah. So this is kind of a question. I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm gonna back up to high school. You know, um, I I take it that if you if you made it on the LSU roster, you had to be serious and dedicated to football. In high school, I take it that as an athlete if you wanted to go to college to play football you had to be super dedicated did hunting did hunting take a back seat uh during your high school days uh because of um, academics and athletics or was were you still able to get out and do it as much as you wanted no it, it took a back seat for sure you know especially when i started to actually get scholarship offers Mm -hmm. and you know that's when it all became real and I understood that you know I had a great opportunity in front of me to uh to do something that not many people get to do and um yeah hunting took a back seat for sure yeah what uh what years were you at LSU uh I played at LSU from 2008 to 2012 um 2008 was my freshman season. That was the class that I supposedly am a, a part of. Yeah. And uh, 2012 was was the last year I was there. Gotcha. How how were those seasons? Just out of curiosity. So my freshman year, that we had won the national championship. My senior year in high school. So okay. As a recruit, you get to pretty much go to all the college games. Um, they give you tickets to every game you want to go to for home games anyway. Yeah. And uh, I went to a bunch of games that year, and, and LSU won the national championship in 2007. And um, so, I mean, I was super pumped up, Jack. I thought we were going to repeat, do it again, you know, a couple times while I was there. And um, 
2008, we kind of had a off year, I guess. I think we finished up eight and five. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't wasn't a great year for us. It wasn't a good good follow up year behind the national championship win. Um, 2009, I think we wound up nine and four. We were a little bit better, but still not not where we needed to be. And then uh, the 2010-11 season, um, we went to the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, and we ended up 11 and two. You know, we had a we had an excellent year that year. Um, you know, we we lost a couple of key games, but you know they were they were close games, and we didn't get blown out by anybody. We just couldn't make it happen at the end. Yeah. And then uh, my last year, 2011-12 season, um, we had a phenomenal year. Probably one of the best teams LSU's ever had. Uh, we went undefeated through the regular season, and um, won the SEC championship, won that title, and then was selected in the national championship game that was back when it was still the bcs right and um again after we had already beat them in the regular season they thought alabama deserved a chance to get to play us again and we we thought that was just absurd you know why, why did they get the chance to play us again in the national championship and, of course, most people who follow college football are familiar with what happened in that game. Yeah. They freaking blew us out. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it ended up it, – it put a, you know, terrible ending to an awesome season that we had. Um, you know, we had a super talented team that year. And, and uh, you know, we, we definitely had a team that could have won it all. But, you know, for whatever reason, the BCS college football committee, people, whoever they are, we're not happy with them, but uh, they, they thought Alabama deserved a, a second chance at playing us after we had already beat them. So, yeah, yeah, that was uh, that pretty much wraps up the season that I had while at LSU. So but, I, um, I, we had a good run while I was there, but nothing like the run they just had this year. Right. So I, I got to ask this question because I I don't watch much pro football. I'm I. My favorite thing to do, I'll be honest, is go hunt in the morning, come back, watch college football until it's time to come you know, on a Saturday, go uh, go bow hunt in the morning, watch college football until it's time to head out in the afternoon, uh, go hunt in the afternoon, and then come back and watch college football until, you know, catch those West Coast games and watch all. I mean, I just, I love, something about college football I just really love. Does... <laughs> Does the entire SEC just hate Alabama's guts? I mean, especially as a as an athlete in the same division. Yes, the answer to your question <laughs> is absolutely yes. Everybody, they get special treatment. You know, they're Nick Saban. They've won all these national championships and. It, it sometimes it feels like they do get special treatment. You know, their their schedules typically are pretty weak um, in the regular season. While like I think LSU, we had to play seven top ten teams this year. You know, to win the national championship. Um, I, I don't know how many top ten teams Bama had to play off the top of my head, but I guarantee you they did not play the amount of teams we did. Yeah. And um, yeah, everybody pretty much hates Alabama just because <laughs> they've been so dominant. Right. You know, Nick Saban, he used to coach at LSU, too. So yep. There's some bad blood there. Right. And, uh, yeah, pretty much Alabama is, is everybody's <laughs> nemesis. I tell you what, I know a couple Alabama fans, and 
uh, you know, that's just like any school, really. And that's I think that's why I love uh, collegiate sports just as much, you know, uh, more than I think there's just a lot more passion between collegiate teams uh, than there is, you know, like especially in Iowa. Right. Uh, the Iowa Hawkeyes yeah. are it for for the state of Iowa. I mean, we have uh, the Iowa Hawkeyes and we have the um, uh, Iowa State. Those are the two big D1 schools uh, in the state of Iowa. And you're either for the Hawkeyes or you're for uh, Iowa State. And that's it. Right. I mean, Big Ten and Big 12. But uh, I think it's just a whole nother animal down there at uh, down. In, I went to uh, man. It was a long time ago. Uh, 2005, I think it was 2005, I went to, I was in, I was working down in Arkansas, and I went to uh, uh, an Arkansas versus uh, Vanderbilt game, and uh, just just walking through Arkansas Stadium was, and just looking at how people dressed different, I mean, in Iowa, it's just hooded sweatshirts and t-shirts, people dress up to go to games down there, and I thought that was crazy. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So, yeah, man. Uh, you know, Arkansas. Arkansas is a pretty good, pretty good team. But if you ever want to really experience an SEC game, you need to come down to Baton Rouge mm-hmm. and go to LSU. Um, it's it's on a whole another level, man. And if if you ever do, I'm going to warn you: do not wear the opposing team's colors because I good chance you're going to get beer poured on your head, and people are going to be walking behind you down the street screaming tiger bait in your face so uh <laughs> just if you ever do decide to come down to baton rouge to a game don't wear the opposing team's colors but can you i wear have on some purple and gold no matter who you're rooting for but i got i can't do that i gotta rep the hawks dude they i'm i'm 10 well, minutes they're not playing the hawks then i'm just saying okay okay i gotcha i gotcha all right so yeah, so yeah. needless to say while you're while you're uh playing football at lsu that took the that took priority i mean i did you miss a lot of uh, tree stand time while you were playing ball yes i missed it tremendously man um you know i i really think that's kind of you know having to be separated from it for four years I think that's really what drove my passion even harder for hunting because, you know, me and a couple of my buddies on the team, we were all, you know, really uh, passionate about hunting and stuff. And I remember we would just, like, sit at the house on some weekend nights instead of, like, going out and partying. we just sit there and watch hunting shows and just, like, wishing, you know, we could be at the camp or in the woods or yeah. something like that. But, uh, yeah, I didn't get – very many opportunities to go hunting while I was playing football down there because you know we were we were always pretty successful and we always played in a a bowl game that was either late December early January and when you're playing in those type games you're pretty much on campus from you know early August or actually early June all the way through probably the second week in January Mm -hmm. and um, you know that takes up the majority of hunting season right and um yeah we we missed it a lot while i was while i was hunting i mean while i was playing football down there and uh, when we would get the chance to go we ate it up man yeah yeah so it probably wasn't until after you know after january that you were able to you know if you were going to a bowl game every single year probably and when when does uh louisiana's uh season end 
Uh, our season ends January 31st. That's okay. typically like the last day of bow season, um, usually here in Louisiana. But, I mean, school would start back like mid-January. So right. there was really only a week there that I could come home and actually hunt, and, you know, on the family farm and everything um, after the bowl game and then before school started back. Yeah, and I bet by that point you're just so worn out from playing football that you just wanted to chill. Yeah, exactly. Your body needs a little time off, you know, from the from the grind of the season, man. It's 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 pretty tough to to get through it with a healthy body at the end of the year. Yeah. And um, but I, I didn't care if I had a chance to go hunting. I was going hunting, whether I was limping to the stand or what. <laughs> you know? Amen. Amen. All right. So yeah. uh, college gets over with, um, and so after college, it, did you pick it right back up? I mean, your, your four years were done. You graduated. Did you get a job and jump right back in into hunting, like, hardcore at that point? Yep, sure did. Uh, took a job in the ag industry. Um, I worked for a distributor called Nutrient Ag Service uh, in here, kind of right outside of Monroe in Rayville, Louisiana. Yeah. And, um, yep, as soon as, soon as I got the chance when hunting season came around, I was in the woods every day I had an opportunity to be there. Right. And um, I started to put together some really good seasons. Um, 2013, I killed, you know, my biggest buck to date. That was with a rifle. Yeah. Um, he was uh, he was a 155, uh, mainframe 10 point, super heavy, um, had never seen the deer before, never got a trail camera picture of him. I just got out. Um, of the house one day I used to live like right on the family farm pretty much so I could just walk out my uh, back door hop on the four-wheeler and go get on the deer stand for a couple years there and um, uh, picked a picked a good morning nobody else was hunting and you know it all it all happened that day and um, the next season I, sh- I killed another you know really good 10 point he was uh, probably 144 145 22 inches inside spread, um, super heavy mass. And then um, in 2016, shot another 148-inch 10-point um, with my with a rifle. And then uh, 2018, I killed my first uh, big deer, like I, what I'm calling mature buck, with my bow. Awesome. Um, and that was, that was a really, really special moment because – you know, I I bow hunted every year, and I was I was trying to make it happen with a bow, but for you know one reason or another, I never could you know close the deal. And then finally, when it all happened in October in 2018, man, that was that was when I felt like I'd finally arrived. You know, I yeah. was I'd done it, and um, you know I thought I was just going to keep doing it from there. Yeah. So compared compare your your best rifle deer to your best bow deer is 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 it the same to you or does the 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 best bow kill hold more significance for you i mean i would say that the best bow kill definitely holds a little bit more significance yeah um to me just because i understand you know how challenging it really and truly is you know it's it's not every day that you're gonna you're going to be successful with a bow. You know, most years you're not going to be successful and you're going to have to hunt your ass off and, 
you can't really expect anything at the end of the day. And then right. when it truly happens, it just makes you appreciate it so, so much more than, uh, than hunting with a gun, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so uh, you, you, you get back on the horse and you start hunting uh, full-time, and then you've you kind of had a life-changing experience. Um, what, what year was that? So that was in uh, 2018, actually. Okay. Um, December December 28, 2018, was uh, was when the life changing changing experience happened. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll just kind of go into it now and explain. Yeah. But um, so that year, 2018, I just mentioned I, that's when I shot my first, you know, real mature bow buck, and um, in October. And then we, we also hunted out in Texas, and uh, I had a really successful season in Texas that year, too. I, I harvested another, you know, nice eight-point with my bow out there, and um, I had basically tagged out um, for everywhere that I had to hunt um, by the second week of November in 2018. Yeah. And um, so I was pretty much done deer hunting at that point, early November. And in Louisiana, we have a lot of duck hunting because, you know, we have lots of water flooded rice fields, uh, bayous, sloughs, breaks, um, WRP ground, and we have ducks that just pile in, you know, most winter. So uh, since I was done deer hunting for the season, I decided I was going to, you know, start chasing the ducks. And uh, that's typically what what I do. Um, you know, usually the, the best deer hunting is pretty much wrapped up um, by Christmas on our home farm. And um, I'm usually duck hunting after that. So um, December 28th of 2018, so it's been basically a year and two months ago now, um, I was over at Eagle Lake, Mississippi, which is about 30 minutes north of Vicksburg, Mississippi. It's uh, right there on the Mississippi, Um, not too far from where I live. It's about an hour and a half from where I live. And uh, we were duck hunting. And that morning, I was supposed to hunt by myself um, because the spot that we had picked out had very little cover. And when you're duck hunting, you got to have tons of cover and you got to stay hidden in order for the birds not to see you so they'll fly in and decoy and get close enough for a shot. So I was supposed to hunt by myself. Had some crazy things happen to me that morning. Um, and it wound up forcing me to hunt close to uh one of the other groups that was out at the farm that that weekend um there was there was five of us total that were hunting that weekend it was my cousin uh, my youngest brother and two of our friends and myself and um so i wound up having to hunt closer to one of the other groups and as we were kind of packing up our gear and getting ready to kind of either and try to hunt a little bit longer or go back to the camp and cook breakfast. Um, we were we were trying to make that decision. It was probably around nine nine thirty in the morning, and um, we were loading our gear up. And I put my shotgun down in the back of the Ranger. Uh, we had a Polaris Ranger that we were riding through the field in that morning, and um, we had a dog with us, black Labrador Retriever. And as we were kind of gathering all our stuff, the dog jumped up in the bed of the Polaris Ranger. And it couldn't have been a second or two after the dog jumped in the bed that we heard a loud crack. And uh, 
I remember somebody yelled out, what was that? And I glanced down, and when I looked down, all I could see was a large gaping hole in the side of the ranger bed. Yeah. Immediately, the directly next to my left leg. Yeah. So it hit me all of a sudden what just happened. You know, this, this shotgun just went off, and we're all standing right here around it. And uh, so I went to take a step back to see, you know, if I had been hit or what the damage was. And when I went to take a step back, my left leg did not move. And I stumbled and fell to the ground, and then that's when the adrenaline rush just hit me, man. It was, uh, you know, my biggest fear, my worst fear had just happened in the blink of an eye, you know. Right. Um, this gun went off, hit me in the top of my left leg. Um, it destroyed, absolutely destroyed my femoral artery. Um, and I basically bled out in about 20 minutes. Um, my friends that were with me, thank, thank God I had people with me that day. Um, they grabbed me, loaded me up in the Polaris Ranger and man, highway instead of driving me back to the camp. And, uh, that, that one decision alone you could say, you know, could have saved my life because that probably saved the ambulance about, you know, 30 minutes in getting me to the hospital. Yeah. Well, as they loaded me in the Ranger, took off towards the highway, you know, my body was just, I mean, it was shutting down, man. You know, my femoral artery, everybody knows how important and crucial that artery is to the human body. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was, it was destroyed and I was bleeding out. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a terrible feeling and a helpless feeling knowing that, you know, there was nothing I could do at this point really other than just try to stay awake. Yeah. You know, everybody sees the movies when somebody's in critical condition, you know, everybody around them saying, just stay awake, stay with me, stay awake, stay with me. And, you know, that's all I could think about in my head was I just, I just have to stay awake. Yeah. Yeah. I stay awake, you know, maybe I can make it home to see my wife and, and son again. And, um, so they finally got me to the highway and, uh, pulled me out on the ground and, you know, was applying pressure to my leg. And I had on a pair of chest blazers that morning. So they couldn't really tell how bad the injury was. You know, there was a little bit of blood that was visible, but, you know, all they could see was just a little bit of blood and, you know, they couldn't really see a whole lot of like holes and stuff in my waiter pants. And uh, they kept telling me, you know, it doesn't look that bad. It doesn't look that bad. Just just stay awake. You know, the ambulance is on the way. And uh, I knew they were wrong. And uh, after about five minutes of after we got to the highway, a pair um, of volunteer firefighters uh, showed up on the scene. They were local there at Eagle Lake, Mississippi. And uh, one of them came over to me, and he had a pair of, like, cutting shears. And he went to cut my waders off of and I remember when he cut them all the way down and folded them over, I heard somebody behind me, one of my friends, say, oh, my God. And, uh, you know, I knew already in my mind that this was a serious situation just because of the way my body felt. But I remember they said, you know, all my pants and everything were just covered in blood. And I think some blood, like, poured out of my waders. And, uh, you know, that's when they, they knew that, you know, I was, I was close to dying. And um, one of the fire, other firefighters came over, put a tourniquet on my leg. And um, so basically from there, we were just waiting on the ambulance to show up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I probably went 
at least 20, 25 minutes without a tourniquet on my leg. And, um, you know, I, I don't know any listeners out there are aware of, you know, how fast people can bleed out when their morals hit, but, you know, it's, it's typically, you know, 15, 20 minutes. If you don't have something to stop it, then you're pretty much toast. Right. And, uh, you know, I was right there at that time limit. And, um, eventually the ambulance finally got there and I was, I was in and out, in and out at that point. You know, I was, I was barely alive hanging on to a thread. And, um, the last thing I remember was them loading me up in the back of the ambulance. And, uh, I remember going around a few curves and then like a light, shoo, I was out. And, uh, I wound up, I was unconscious for 12 days total. Um, don't remember anything for 12 days. In the ambulance ride, um, I coded for probably, I don't know, I think it was 20, 25 minutes. Um, they got my pulse back before they got me to the hospital. And then once they wheeled me into the hospital, I coded a second time for another 20, 25 minutes. So that day, I coded for, you know, at least 45 minutes. I did not have a heartbeat. And, um, you know, doctors and everybody that worked on me, you know, after I woke up and came to, they, they told me, you know, that there was no reason that I should have survived that. Wow. Um, you know, they could not explain it, you know, other than it being a miracle. Um, you know, they said there was no other explanation for my survival. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, in order for them to be able to save my life, they had and um, they had to take it. They amputated it at the hip. At yeah, the hip. They, had, they had to take it off, you know, pretty much the first day just because there was so much blood loss and they were just doing everything they could just to, you know, keep my heart pumping. And, yeah. you know, my leg was not the priority at that point. It was my life. Right. And, um, but they wound up having to take my left leg at the hip. So uh, now I am a hip disarticulation amputee and it's uh, called a hippie for short. So, Go figure now. I'm a, I'm a permanent hippie for life. <laughs> Sorry for laughing, but uh, that no, is... It's, not, it's fine, man. That is absolutely crazy. And, like, I always joke about my finger, right? I mean, it's a finger, yeah. right? My life, my life changed a little bit, but not, you know, like, I was never in any threat of dying, you know, on my way to the hospital. I mean, I, I went into shock and, and and I'm, I'm sure you did too. Um, when, when you did come to in the hospital, those 12 days later, what was that realization like for you? Well, when I first came to, you know, I mean, I had been in a medical induced coma, you know, they had, put all kinds of anesthesia in me and, you know, pain medicine, opioids. And you know, I was, I had had some crazy, you know, out of body experience, like dreams while I was out. And then you know, I was hallucinating really bad when I woke up. Yeah. Um, I was seeing things, a, a lot of crazy things for like two days after I woke up. But, you know, I really didn't understand that my leg was gone at first because of phantom pain. And I know you're probably aware of, of phantom pain, yep. you know, missing a, right. as much, but, um, you know, I thought my leg was still there because I could feel it due to phantom pain. And, uh, I remember I kept telling like my wife and my dad, like, Hey, can you scratch my, my left leg for me? It's itching really bad. You know, it's tingling. 
and it's just the phantom pain that you're feeling. And uh, they kept giving me these blank stares like, uh, no, we, we can't do that. You know, the doctor said we can't touch it. And then um, finally, after, you know, several hours of me just begging them to scratch my left leg because it was, in, you know, itching so much, they, they had to tell me, you know, that they had to amputate it yeah. to save my life. And, uh, you know, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, man. Like my whole life that I'd imagined, um, you know, growing up and, you know, even recently as an adult, you know, where I pictured myself in 5, 10, 20 years, you know, all that was just out the window now. Right. You know, I didn't know anything about being an amputee. I didn't, I didn't even know an amputee personally. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just a complete shock. Yeah. Um, having to rethink your life, you know, where, what am I going to be able to do now? Am I still going to be able to hunt and fish and, and do all the things in the outdoors that I've enjoyed throughout my life? Right. Um, you know, all these, all these thoughts just hit me so hard. And, you know, that was, that was one of the things I asked the doctors when they came to me, I said, am I going to be able to still climb in a tree? You know, am I still going to be able to hunt and, and do some of the things that I'm passionate about and that I love, and, you know, Sadly, the doctors just looked at me and shook their heads. No, like I, I don't, I don't see you being able to climb in a tree anymore. You know, um, as I said, I'm a hip amputee, so I don't have, I have no remnants of a left leg at all. And um, you know, this amputation is extremely rare and it is extremely difficult. Um, you know, my prosthetic that I have and use, it has to replace all three working joints on my left leg, my hip, my knee, and my ankle. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a, a tough road to kind of get it all figured out and learn how to use it. But, um, yeah, man, it was, it was a complete and utter shock once they told me the realization of my injuries and, and told me, you know, kind of gave me a very dark grim look on my outlook. on. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, as I said earlier in the show, I'm, I'm only 30 years old. You know, I'm, I'm pretty young, and, you know, I got a long way to go. Yeah. So I saw a uh, video of you. You're able to stand upright and, and walk That's right now using your prosthetic, right? Right, yeah. I can I can walk on it. Um, you know, I've, I've pretty much found a way to do a lot of the things that I did before on it. Yeah. So what about um, the 2019 hunting season? Obviously, uh, I mean, that that's a very long and hard road. Um, and for me, I mean, if I'm just I'm trying to put myself in your shoes for a moment. And I know that that's a very hard thing to do because I can't like I can't even imagine or or think about how I would or would not go about my life without one of my legs right but i know that i would do anything in my power to be able to go and hunt and fish and be an outdoorsman with you know regardless of if i had that leg or not were how long did it take until you were able to say you know what i'm gonna get out and i'm gonna go do something i'm gonna i'm gonna try to hunt this this uh season have you made it in a tree stand you know what I mean? Those those kind of uh, goals and tasks. Yep. yep. So, uh, honestly, it didn't take me long to get back out. Three weeks after I got out of the hospital, 
I went to Texas and was turkey hunting out in Texas. <laughs> Damn. Um, now, yeah, and I, I was successful. I actually, I actually killed a turkey while I was in Texas. Now, it wasn't pretty, you know, Dan. I was, I was crawling around, and you know, I could barely move at that point. That was before I even had a prosthetic. Um, so I was on using crutches. Right. And um, you know, it was, and in Texas, everything out there either sticks you or bites you. So, you know, I'm out there rolling around on the ground trying to crawl close to these birds and stuff. And, you know, I, I, I was successful at it. But, you know, in my head, when, when I found out, you know, the hurdles that I, the hurdles that I had to face and, you know, that, that wasn't going to stop me from still pursuing the outdoors um, and, and doing what I love to do. You know, I knew I could find a way to do it and, you know, I could get my body in good enough shape to be able to continue to enjoy it right you know and and really to be honest with you dan it what it did was it made me appreciate it so much more right you know before all this happened to me you know i was i was bound and determined you know i was gonna i was gonna fill my tag you know i would i would always look at the next opportunity the next big hunt you know where where could i go next what could i do next and you know, I was I was just never really stopping to enjoy the moment and just truly enjoy the opportunity to get to experience the outdoors and, and cherish it. And um, you know, for the most part before before my accident I was I was unhappy. You know, I was I was always Yeah. Or you know, looking at other people and, and seeing how it seemed like they had better experiences or better opportunities, you know, why couldn't I have you know, something like they had, or why couldn't I hunt a place like that? And, you know, I was, I was constantly looking for, you know, the next, the next animal to take off my list. And, you know, now after going through something so traumatic, it's, it's truly made me just appreciate, you know, being out there, man. It's, it's an honor every day that I get to go out and enjoy the woods, you know, be, be alive and, and be able to see the sun come up when I'm sitting in a deer stand and, you know, it's, it's really the small things that matter. And, yeah. you know, for anybody out there that's listening, that's, that's feeling like, you know, they're, they're trying, they're not getting, you know, the opportunity that they see others get, you know, just be grateful for the opportunity that you do have because it can all disappear. It can all be gone in a second. That's a know? fact. And I, I understand that now better than anybody because I've came within literally seconds or minutes of losing my life. And, um, you know, now I'm just so grateful to just be able to be in the outdoors and enjoy it. You know, not everybody gets to enjoy um, hunting and fishing. And, uh, you know, just be grateful for the opportunity to be able to do it every day. That's a fact. That's a fact. And it, it, I bet you for you, and this is just me assuming again, it put a lot of things into perspective about what's important in life and not just on the hunting side of things. Right. Right. Yep. And you know, um, when I was, when I was laying there and thinking I was taking my last breaths, you know, my, my family was, was heavy on my mind. You know, I had a, at the time it happened, my son was, you know, he was a year and two months old. And, um, you know, I just thought about, I was going to miss him growing up. I wasn't going to be able to watch him, you know, grow up and become a man. I wasn't going to be able to, you know, coach him through life and, and try to help him the best I can. And, you know, those things 
really hit me hard when I was laying there on the side of the road, um, you know, taking taking those deep, heavy breaths, trying to stay alive. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it definitely kind of put put some of those things into, into perspective for me. And, you know, my priorities now have definitely changed. Um, you know, I understand when, when you're taking your last breaths on earth, you know, where your thoughts are and, you know, what what you feel like you could have done better. And, you know, the, the number one thing I would say is, you know, just keep your family close and, you know, appreciate and enjoy every minute you can with them. Because when you are taking your last breaths, that is what's on your mind. You know, it's not, I wish more horns on the wall or bigger horns on the wall. It's, I wish I would have, you know, been out and experienced the woods with my, with my son, or I wish I would have just had more moments with him and stuff. And, um, you know, that, that's truly what matters in this life. Yeah, dude. I hope every, every hunter hears this, uh, because I think, you know, we go through life almost with blinders on at times and we don't, we get so caught up in all the BS that we don't really see what is truly important. And in, in I mean, not just in hunting, but in life in general, you know, uh, I caught myself, yeah. I caught myself the other day bitching and complaining about something uh, that literally does not matter in the grand scheme of things. And I, I realized it and I was like, man, I'm just going to sit here and chill with my boys for a little bit while, you know, my daughter was at school and, and just wrestle with them and play with them and, and things like that because um i don't know i was feeling i was kind of feeling sorry for myself and uh although some things like that are important it's you can when you compare what's important to what's really important man i have and even on my desk right here i have a little um per- permanent marker it is family over everything and that yep. that's that's how I make my decisions today, and I'm sure through your experience, that that little saying right there has a, a big impact as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's you know after going through something like this, it's it's put it all in line for me, you know. Yeah. Um, just just being there for your family, and you know making sure that you are, you know present even even when you're in there around them you know making sure you're actually being present and, and listening to them and talking to them you know a lot of times I find myself you know drifting off thinking about work thinking about hunting or whatever and you know just just trying to make a conscious effort to be present you know while you're around them um and it, it's not it doesn't come natural it's not easy and it's not like you know, everything just clicks for me now and I can do all this easily. I still have to work at it, right. you know, even now. Right. Um, and it, but it, but it, all this has done is, is really show me that, you know, that is truly what's important. That is truly what life is all about. Right. All right. So all that aside, right. You still are an outdoorsman. You still love to hunt and fish. Have you set any goals for yourself that, okay, I need to learn how to use this prosthetic out in the woods. I need to learn how to climb a tree again. I need to learn how to do all these other things. Have you set goals for yourself on things that you want to accomplish in uh, short-term and long-term so that you can get back to as much business as usual as possible? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, You know, I, I did a lot of hunting this year, too. 
Um, I didn't do quite as much bow hunting this year just because I just didn't have as much time for one reason or another. But um, I, I did a lot of hunting this year. I, I hunted out in Texas some uh, deer hunting. And I mentioned earlier, I, I turkey hunted three weeks after I got out of the hospital. Yeah. And my wife really thought I was nuts when I told her I was about <laughs> to go to Texas and go turkey hunting, you know, three weeks after I'd been in the hospital for almost two months. Yeah. And, um, but I, I convinced her, you know, look, this is, you know, even though, you know, I was hunting when this happened to me, um, this isn't going to stop me from continuing to enjoy it. But, uh, yeah, it's almost in a way been kind of a, you know, a fun challenge, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to learn how to do everything again and um, basically figure out, you know, how to climb in a ladder stand or, you know, how to how to shoot my bow, um, you know, with a prosthetic or, or without the prosthetic and, um, you know, or, or trying to get through a, a flooded field and go duck hunting again um, on crutches. Yeah. Because uh, it, it's been a challenge, but it, it's kind of been something that I've enjoyed doing in a way just um it, it's kind of made me think back to the basics of hunting and you know trying to figure everything out all over again and uh yeah no i, I definitely have some long-term goals too you know i eventually you know i've always wanted to to go elk hunting yeah out west and um you know i, I think i can do it man um i don't know about using my prosthetic because you know being being so high up i have very little control over it um, and I, I'm six foot six. I'm, I'm a really tall guy, and uh, my prosthetic is like three feet long. Um, you'll probably never hear or see one any longer than that. Um, but uh, but on crutches now, I can I can run around like a spring chicken on crutches, man. I'm, I'm pretty good. Um, and that's that's usually my uh, my mobility method of choice when I'm when I'm out in the woods hunting. Or uh, if I'm going to be chasing turkeys this spring, you know, I'll probably be using uh, just because it, it's just a little bit easier and simpler. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't have to think about my moving around and getting around so much as I do with my prosthetic. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I'm I'm. I'm glad you're still on this planet. I'm glad that uh, you are still out there. Uh, enjoying your yourself in mother nature and through hunting and stuff dude uh awesome um you know it's a tragic story but it's an awesome outcome and uh uh dude just uh let me say thank you for taking your time out of your day to to hop on this podcast and good luck with really whatever you do uh, especially uh this upcoming season in the woods dude I appreciate it, Dan. And um, if I could, just by kind of closing all this out, you know, bring it back to uh, gun safety. You know, my accident that happened, it, it could have been prevented. It should have been prevented. Um, that's the bottom line. Um, you know, for one thing, one reason or another, you know, we tend to get distracted uh, when we're out in the uh, field, you know, enjoying time with friends, family, and, you know, chasing animals. Um, you know, sometimes we let things slip through the cracks and that day, um, that's exactly what happened. And, um, you know, it, this, this accident could have been, should have been prevented. You know, I just ask anyone out there listening that, uh, you make sure and, you know, handle your gun safely every single time, because 
it can happen to anybody. You know, I've, I'm an experienced hunter. Um, you know, through the podcast we've talked about, you know, I've been hunting since I was seven years old. And, you know, I knew everything about gun safety and how to handle a weapon, how to treat a weapon. I respected weapons. And, um, you know, this was just a freak accident and was a mistake that I made that, you know, I will regret for the rest of my life. And, you know, if I can tell my story and, you know, hope that it, it may save this from happening to somebody else down the road one day, you know, I'd be glad to tell my story thousands of times to Amen. keep this from happening to somebody else. Amen. Um, and that's all I want to close out with is just, you know, make sure we're being safe while we're out enjoying the outdoors. If you ask me, I'll tell you, there's some really good perspective in that episode. Huge shout out to Matt for taking time out of his busy day to hop on and chat with us here. Huge shout out to each and every one of you. If you like this podcast, do me a favor and spread the word about it on social media. Tell every one of your friends that if they're looking for a podcast to follow along with or listen to about hunting in the outdoors and really good solid stories I feel like there's not one out there that does much better than this and that's me being a little bit arrogant but uh, you know you got to rep your product at the end of the day so huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to listen also what do I want to talk about I want to thank our sponsors right Uh, the partners that give me money to rep their products and I you know you know that's how this works right so vortex optics huge shout out to those guys the average conservationist go check them out prime bows go shoot their bows ozonic scent elimination Uh, if you haven't tried ozonics borrow one from a friend check one of these units out it's badass wasp broadheads um some of the best possible materials to make these broadheads lone wolf tree stands i don't really need to say much about them because uh, it's one of the greatest tree stands on the market american made and then uh that's it man so huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast if you haven't subscribed please go to uh itunes or wherever you download your podcast and uh hit the subscribe button be sure to check out the nine finger or um the sportsman's nation youtube channel Right, I'm dropping some really, I guess, some some really good insight on the YouTube channel of topo maps, topo lines, how I access tree stand locations, the 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 uh, meat and potatoes of bow hunting. So if you want to go check that out, I would appreciate it. Other than that, huge shout out to you again. Thank you very much. Have a great one. And remember, uh, it's time to start giving back. 2020, we're giving back, baby. So uh, find a cause and support it.